Hello, bonjour and tante. I'm Paula Simons and this is Alberta Unbound. Beverly McLaughlin is one of Canada's most luminous legal luminaries. She was, of course, the first woman to serve as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, a position she held for 17 years, years that revolutionized our understanding of the Constitution, the Charter, and the role of the courts. Since her retirement from the bench in 2017, she's been anything but retiring. Her autobiography, Truth Be Told, won the Writers' Trust Shaughnessy Cohen Prize as the best political book of 2019, as well as the Ottawa Book Award for nonfiction. And her two mystery novels, Full Disclosure and Denial, became instant bestsellers. But this podcast is, after all, Alberta Unbound. So when I sat down with Beverly McLaughlin, we started by talking about her Rocky Mountain roots, her time at the University of Alberta, and her own sense of Alberta identity. Here is the first part of our conversation. I'd always known that you grew up in Southern Alberta, but I don't think I really understood until I read your autobiography, Truth Be Told, just how remote your home in the mountains was. I mean, I thought you'd lived in Pincher Creek, but you didn't. So I wonder if you could describe for people who haven't read the book yet a bit about where you lived as a child and what it was like. Well, it was in what they call the high foothills. Uh, It was a beautiful valley, Uh, but as you say, very remote. Uh, about three miles from a service road and 25 miles from the town of Pincher Creek. And uh, so we had this beautiful, beautiful place to grow up in, uh, but it was remote. And all the way around, there's a wonderful view of the uh, mountains. Uh, So the valley itself is called uh, Gladstone Valley. And uh, it's one of the most beautiful valleys in the in, in the world, I like to think. So yeah, it was it was very, very uh, remote and very beautiful, but a very different kind of way to grow up. I guess it made me pretty resilient. And uh, you realize, and it was, a, it was a good experience because a lot of people nowadays don't realize how it was to live without uh, electricity and indoor plumbing and those kind of things. And uh, they go camping to have that discovery, you know, Uh, but I had a day in day out and I realized, you know, how I can really, really, how, how difficult it is to live, especially for women who always have the burden, my mother, you know, of, of making, making sure that everybody was, fed and washed and that all the chores were done and things like that. And it was so hard uh, before we had modern conveniences and modern appliances. So um, it's given me a historic appreciation that may or may not be very important or relevant, but I feel that I was privileged kind of to have that experience. And then of course, everything that came after in our modern world. Now, people who know you under the name Beverly McLaughlin might assume that your family roots were Scottish, no. but your parents were German. They were part they were, of Alberta's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, huge, huge, but some, some sort of quiet ethnic German community. And yeah. they came from an evangelical Pentecostal yeah. tradition. So how much, yeah. how much did those factors shape the kind of, you know, yeah. childhood you had and the person you became? Well, I think it, 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 it obviously was an important part uh, and uh, um, the values that underlie uh, that those traditions uh, 
are with you for the rest of your life. Um, values like honesty, integrity, uh, hard work, uh, respect for all uh, people. My parents were uh, in some ways surprising, uh, really liberal in the sense that they were very um, uh, they were very much against racism, very much against discrimination, very much believing that everybody had a place in the community, regardless of their backgrounds. And that extended to Indigenous people. It extended to people from different racial backgrounds who happened to cross our paths. And, and they were and, and the Hutterites and all those minority communities that were sometimes looked down on. My parents were very adamant particularly my father, but my mother too, that well, I shouldn't have even made a distinction. She was very, very adamant that everybody had a place in God's world and that we had to treat everybody equally. So uh, that is not always the value you get out of some sort of, out of a fundamentalist uh, uh, tradition, but that's the value I was brought up with. And that was really important to how I viewed the world and still view the world. On Alberta Unbound, this podcast, we've talked from time to time about how our geography and the landscape of this place shapes our provincial culture and worldview. And I know for many Albertans, the mountains have a symbolic importance that's almost spiritual. And I wondered what that landscape, those mountains meant for you growing up and and if you carry that with you. Yeah, I do. And it was spiritual for me. Um, Sometimes I would... um, as a teenager, you know, uh, resent the fact that I wasn't, uh, uh, didn't live closer to town and have all those uh, opportunities that a little bit more urban landscape gives you. But I always felt totally privileged to uh, be living in such a beautiful place. And it did assume a spiritual dimension for me. I love to ride horseback. I did a lot of walking and hiking. I loved the wildflowers. I loved the, the mountains and, uh, um, I just, I just imbibed that. And, and I think it did affect me very deeply it, it, to this day. My surroundings are very important to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess you still have mountains in Vancouver. Just not. Quite yeah, we have mountains, not the Rockies, but they're lovely. And I, I'm happy with the mountains around. Some people aren't some people, people, for example, who grow up on a broad plain uh, feel uncomfortable and uh, feel the mountains are closing in on them, a bit claustrophobic, but I'm very content with mountains around. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do with this podcast, and it's the reason I started this podcast, was I guess to both interrogate and reclaim the whole idea of Alberta identity. Good for you. But (laughs) yeah, it's, it's, it's been a project. So, you know, so much of Alberta identity is tied up with this idea of freedom the glorification of a kind of rugged individualism and against the backdrop of the convoy occupation of Ottawa and the blockages of the borders, including, you know, the coots near where you grew up, you wrote quite a provocative op-ed column for the Globe and Mail dissecting our obsession with the notion of freedom. Yeah. And I wonder what you think we need to understand about the meaning of freedom and the way, you know, we make freedom part of our identity. Yeah, well, I think we need to ask ourselves uh, what we mean by freedom. Um, Is it just, uh, I don't like what the government is telling me, wear a mask or um, get a vaccine, and that makes me less free? Uh, 
or uh, is it just that sort of a knee-jerk reaction that I can't do what I want? Freedom for me, and, and I was a judge for many years and, 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 and steeped in the charter values, which, which I actually think work very, very well. But freedom is not a black and white absolute concept. Freedom is a conditional concept. Even in the United States, you know, where the Constitution says right out, you know, uh, uh, Congress shall not limit. You can't have any limit, it says, on free expression. Well, they've had to modify that. As, as Oliver Wendell Holmes, a conservative jurist, pointed out, you can't falsely cry fire in a crowded theater because many people will die. And so our freedoms are always relative. And they are limited by uh, reasonable limits that governments can impose in a free and democratic society, to quote section one of the charter. So when you understand that, with that, you understand that freedom isn't an absolute license to do whatever you want. Freedom is set in a social context, in a social matrix. And my exercise of the freedom has to stop where it might harm somebody else. That's the general proposition. And some people have a hard time understanding that. And they think, well, freedom is just, I should be able to do whatever I want to do. And, and, but that's very difficult. You know, you see the odd person who walls themselves up in some sort of um, mountain lair and won't pay taxes and won't do anything else. That's absolute freedom. But it's not a feasible way to live in the world. So I think we have to all accept that to some extent, uh, our freedoms have to be limited so that we can all live together in a social framework. Now, we can argue about where those limits should be, and that's where the real argument should be. And I think that uh, in uh, some people, you, know, uh, you mentioned rugged individualism, uh, they want to have more room to decide things for themselves and less room for the government to do so, and so other people in society uh, to do so. Uh, other people take a different view and they draw the lines at slightly different place. And as I said in my piece in the Globe and Mail, under our constitution, it's the governments that in the first instance have to draw those lines. And if we want to live together in this country, we expect citizens to obey that. But, that, but those, those lines, the, the governments are accountable for that to the courts. If they draw them in the wrong places, those lines will get struck down by the courts. Uh, and uh, and similarly, they're accountable to the electorate if they draw them. In the so we have these constitutional mechanisms that really provide a pretty good framework for defining freedom and and telling us where the limits uh, should be in a particular situation. So, do you think it's? I mean, you know, you haven't been an Albertan for a while. I have. I've decided for purposes of this podcast that you are an honorary Albertan forever yes. and always. Oh, but do I you, agree. Do you, do you think there is a kind of a danger in Alberta of making a fetish of what you call in your essay, ugly freedoms? Well, we know, I mean, I was referring to uh, this book by um, an American um, uh, 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 academic. And, and, and it's, you know, she points out that freedom can have a dark side when if, if, if you think you are free to hurt other people, if you are free to prevent them from going about their business, if you are free to uh, put them at greater risk of illness in a very material sense, uh, then uh, that can be harmful. 
But beyond that, some people take freedom to be the right to uh, make racist slurs, to uh, put down women wearing headscarves. Uh, and we saw that nasty side coming out in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. uh, I had friends who uh, uh, walking to work with a headscarf on who who were made who were harassed and made and and called terrible names. Uh, and that that is the ugly side. And 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 I don't believe that has a place in our society. But some people will arm themselves with this false sense of freedom. I get to do what I want. I can be nasty to other people. I can be racist. I can discriminate. That's part of my freedom, too. And that I reject categorically. And I don't think that has any place in Alberta, too. I know Alberta, and there may be people, any province, who think that way. But Alberta is full of wonderful people who would not dream of acting in that way. You eventually left left the mountains, left Pincher Creek, came to the University of Alberta to study philosophy first uh, and then law. And I know in, in your memoir, you write about the fact that at a certain point you had to decide whether you're going to take an, an academic career in philosophy mm -hmm. or become a lawyer. And I'm wondering why in the end, you know, why did you choose the law rather than moral philosophy as a well, uh, several reasons. At that time, moral philosophy, which was my real interest, wasn't wasn't even being offered, and it, everything was linguistic philosophy and Noam Chomsky, and that didn't interest me so much. I mean, I think it was very valuable to understand as that that words are how we use them. What our little conversation we just had about freedom shows that fundamental to me is define your terms and figure out what you're talking about and what you mean by these words you float around in philosophical discussions. So I really benefited from that linguistic tradition, but I wasn't particularly um, uh, excited about building on it. And I didn't think I could contribute very much. And so that was one factor. Uh, later on, uh, 10 or 15 years later, uh, the whole world of moral philosophy just blossomed open. And, and I think if I'd done that, I would have eventually found a, a, a nice, a, a comfortable place. But, but so I wasn't too interested in what I'd be actually doing, what these various graduate schools were offering first. Second, uh, uh, I, I was interested in doing something with a little more hands-on application in society. I've always been interested in, in, in society. And of course, moral philosophy is one way in it, into that and is very, very important. But the idea of actually working with people in, in concrete situations attracted me. And then, so I, I hadn't really thought about the law, as you know, from reading my memoir, but I was persuaded that I should give it a try. And I did. And yeah, the third it worked and most, out. Yeah, the third and most important thing was that I really, really liked it from the very beginning. I loved it. And I said, I think I want to stay in this place. Now, by the time you were at the U of A Law School, um, it had produced a lot of notable female graduates. I think about people like Viola King and Margaret Krang and Marguerite Ritchie. So female law students weren't exactly a novelty by the time you were there. But did you still feel you know, well, discrimination was there, you know, was it, is it, was it subtler than it might've been earlier? Well, or was it pretty, was it pretty upfront? We didn't hear about those people very much. And, 
um, you know, it, it, we were just, uh, when I went to started law school, it was just on the cusp of a great change, which I went, I went in the mid sixties, uh, by the mid seventies, uh, almost 50% of the class were women. So, uh, but it was about 10%, I'd say, uh, when I went there. So the women were very much, uh, minorities. And yeah, those, uh, we knew that some women had succeeded in law, but they were remote and distant figures. And I didn't know of any women actually successfully practicing law. And uh, I didn't personally that, and, and we didn't have those kind of role models. There were some out there, uh, but very rare. And then even then the tradition was that if you married, uh, you would uh, stop practicing and, uh, that was uh, a very, very different world. So uh, when I was studying in liberal arts and philosophy, you know, women were accepted as uh, equals, but, and, and, and as normal, equals is perhaps the wrong term, as normal, just they were there and they were studying like everybody else. But when you get to law school, you get to a very mass, I got to a very masculine atmosphere where, there were very few women compared to the number of men. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's not like people were saying you shouldn't be here or not, but you were a bit of a novelty. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, you were always, you always felt at some level that you were the outsider and that this was really uh, a profession for men and uh, you would be permitted to, to, to give it a go. Uh, but uh, you knew it wouldn't, be a natural or easy. Then there were some people who really encouraged the women, even in those days, and some of the professors and so on. So that was very reassuring. But they were people who had a vision for the future that was different than the present in which we were actually living. And so it was a very different atmosphere. Things were said then that could about women or two women that could never be tolerate would never be tolerated now you had to get used to that and uh just accept it and say i'm going to plow on and uh so i wasn't unhappy i had a great time at law school uh, but there were uh there was a it was a definitely a different environment so you practiced for a while in edmonton and then left us for vancouver a journey that many Albertans have made over the years. Yes. Um, but you stayed in the West working in BC as a lawyer, a professor, okay. and then a judge. Uh, so, you know, as I say, we've, we've been a little obsessed with Alberta identity in this podcast, but do you think there is a kind of Western identity, a Western mindset that connects Alberta and British Columbia? Oh yeah, I think so. I think people in Alberta and British Columbia uh are used to going back and forth and there's so much transmigration as you've pointed out and uh, uh they're very different they're, alberta has many different places in it bc has many different places in it uh, but there are ties it's these social ties and family ties and that kind of thing that uh, make it um uh, uh, something of a community even though you're in different provinces uh, so, yes, I think, and I think there is a Western point of view. Um, I, I, it's hard to define. Uh, Alberta 
is different than British Columbia. British Columbia has its own ethos and depending on where you are in British Columbia, that can be different. Um, so these things are very nebulous, but one does feel that this is, this is a Western place. This is a, Vancouver is a Pacific place. Uh, yeah. uh, we, are, we think about Asia here more than we would perhaps on a day-to-day -day basis living in Ottawa, for example. Um, and, uh, and they're recent provinces. That's, yeah. that's the big difference. I mean, uh, Alberta, 1905, British Columbia, a uh, uh, little earlier, but uh, it's, it's, uh, they, they're, they're young and, and, and they have a different history completely to uh, the Maritimes or Quebec or Ontario yeah. or even Manitoba. So it's our particular histories that, that, that shape us. And that was the first part of my conversation with Beverly McLaughlin, philosopher, jurist, author, and Albertan. Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation where we'll discuss her years on the Supreme Court and her new career as a mystery writer. Alberta Unbound is written and presented by me, Senator Paula Simons, and edited and produced by Caitlin Cummings. Thanks for listening. Merci and hi hi.